0: guys, welcome to the show. Today is going to be a fun episode with Brian Rimza and he's going to be recapping his doll sheep hunt last summer and I'm also going to be joined by Chase Christopher and Kevin Passmore of the Mountain Project. They are also going on a doll sheep hunt at Arctic Red River as well as Mountain Caribou. They're going to be going in August. I'm going to be going in July. Uh, We've got a load of questions here for Brian Remza on his preparation and uh, just how the hunt rolls and all the gear stuff for this um, upcoming sheep hunts. And Brian's going to answer these questions. Before we get to that, I want to thank you guys for supporting and listening to this podcast. Without you guys, uh, all of the success this podcast has had wouldn't be possible. I want to encourage you guys, if you have any questions, please Feel free to send them to me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along on my Instagram page at jscottoutdoors. I also want to thank the sponsors of this podcast before we get into the episode. I want to thank Go Hunt Insider. And I want to remind you guys that they're the industry leader for everything Western hunting, with the filtering 2.0 system, draw odds, strategy articles, species breakdowns, states, rules, and regs and then all the gear giveaways and hunt giveaways. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt gear shop gift card uh, immediately. You can spend uh, that $50 immediately on all of the great gear in the, in the gear shop there. Uh, so make sure to sign up for GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Use the J. Scott promo code. I also want to thank KU Ultralight Hunting. That's K U. IU.com and I want to remind you guys that on June 23rd, upcoming, about a week, a week from today, actually, uh, you can come to CUYU's Mountain Academy. And we're going to be uh, doing actually some seminars. Jason Harrison, the founder of Kuyu, is going to be doing a seminar on new gear. Um, Brendan Burns is going to be doing a seminar on uh, finding the right hunt for you. Um, and, and how to find those um, good hunts. Uh, there's also going to be some seminars by Paul Bride, who's a fantastic photographer. I'm actually going to be giving a seminar on um, optics and doing some field judging. Uh, and um, Lance Kronberger from Freelance Outdoor Adventures is going to be doing a, a seminar on gear. And he's also the guy that I drew my Alaska doll sheep hunt with. Um, It's free. Come on out. Uh, Every seminar, they're actually going to be giving away a $250 gift certificate uh, that you can use immediately. So if you're in the area or if you want to fly in uh, right there in Dixon, California, June 23rd, the Mountain Academy, if for whatever reason you can't make it, uh, they are going to be uh, putting it on the Kuyu Facebook Live. Um, And I'm going to also try to get uh, most of the audio from the seminars put them on this podcast. I want to thank KUYU uh, for their sponsorship of this podcast. And I also want to thank the Outdoorsmans. uh, one 800 291 8065 or Outdoorsmans.com. If you use the J Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there at the Outdoorsmans. Uh, Also have uh, some great things coming, uh, uh, some sponsorship announcements and such uh, that we'll be following here in the next couple weeks that I'm excited about. And I just want to thank you guys for your support. Let's get right to this episode with Brian and Chase and Kevin.
1: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a fun episode. I don't know that we've ever actually tried to do this, uh, but we're going to attempt to try and pull off a four-way call here. Uh, We've got Chase Christopher and Kevin Passmore from the Mountain Project. And these guys uh, do a phenomenal job with their YouTube videos, um, hunting actually all over the Southwest, um, and going to be going to the Northwest Territories. They did some Alaska hunts, some Mexico hunts, a lot of Arizona, New Mexico, uh, a lot of great hunts on YouTube, and I'll let those guys kind of introduce uh, what they got going on, but I'm, I'm a Uh, Big fan, and I know if any of the listeners out there, if you haven't heard of the Mountain Project after hearing this uh, podcast episode, I highly encourage you to go check these guys out. We also have my good friend Brian Rimza, uh, who's been on the podcast before, and um, what you're really looking at here is three sponges uh, that are going to try and soak up as much information as we can. Uh, from Brian. Um, I'm fortunate to be going to the Northwest Territories hunting doll sheep on my first personal uh, sheep hunt, uh, first personal sheep hunt that I've ever done uh, in July, so coming up in, in less than a month here. And then Chase and Kevin uh, are both uh, going in late August uh, through early September, and they're going to be. Uh, hunting uh, doll sheep and mountain caribou now my hunt uh, is the first hunt and the mountain caribou season is not open at that time Um, and we'll get into it later but I'm sure I'll I'll be seeing quite a few mountain caribou and it's really an animal that I'm excited to see Um, I've never seen a caribou in my life and um, none less see a mountain caribou Um, but I guess let's dive into it Brian how you doing I'm doing good, Jay. How are you? Good. I'm looking forward to, as well as I know, uh, Kevin and Chase. Uh, Kevin and Chase, uh, why don't you guys um, give a little background on the Mountain Project, and then we'll dive in and start uh, drilling Remza with some questions here.
2: Yes, sounds good. Thanks for having us on, Jay. Um, Absolutely. The Mountain Mountain Project is, uh, myself and Jay Park started it, a little over four years ago, and uh, just had some ideas. We both liked filming hunts, and we both enjoyed uh, traveling and whatever else we could do, and we uh, decided we'd throw that together and and just start making films out of it. And in the early years, we would uh, try to make a little more, I don't know, of just a nice film, uh, whatever hunt we made, we take just the best footage and knock it down to a few minutes, you know, to eight minutes, and now, on our fourth year, we've moved on, and, and we've started doing daily videos, and it kind of keeps all of that footage out there that people might want to see, some behind-the-scenes stuff, and the, the mistakes and mishaps that we do, and and just something that we've, we've enjoyed doing over the years, and kind of what it's progressed into and the last season we had Kevin and his wife Brittany on and uh, they're producing a lot of really neat content a lot of different hunts and adding a different perspective to the Mountain Project but as a whole I just say the, the Mountain Project is just filming hunts and and uh, we've started an apparel line in the last year or so selling some shirts and just having fun with it mostly. That's awesome. I know I'm a big fan um,
1: of everything that you guys are doing. Um, Chase, would you say that the move more from the cinematic, you know, to basically filming your hunts, when I hear you talking about doing, you know, daily videos, um, is it more of a reality or, you know, as real time progresses, you know, just what's going on in all of your lives? leading up to the hunts and, you know, in the off-season, preparing for the hunts, you know, and then, and then on during the hunt, are you moving to more of that structure because you feel like, um, you know, that's the way social media and that's the way a lot of the presentation has been out there or was it just, you know, strictly wanting to create more content for people to consume?
2: I'd say it's a little bit of everything. You know, the we really like the cinematic stuff and really look up to a lot of guys that are are good at it. But there's been a big response from us doing this daily stuff. Is uh, it's it's a little more reality TV style, but we try to keep a a cinematic touch to it, and it's just been people have received it a lot better and and really like to see everything so yeah the the, the more content I think the better but we're trying to keep it quality content at the same time not just throwing everything out there yeah
1: for sure um from an editing standpoint uh, and then we'll dive in here to the podcast from an editing standpoint does Jay Park handle most of the editing or do you guys um share on that
2: Jay Jay's definitely the wizard with editing. Uh, with the daily videos that we started, it's it's um, quite a bit for him to tackle. So Kevin and I do our part is like pre-edit. So we throw uh, the the video on the timeline as it happened, and then Jay goes in and cleans up um, what we do. You know, he goes in and touches up the audio and the color and the transitions and. He's definitely way better at that than we are, but uh, we Kevin and I try to help out by by getting that ready for him.
1: Good, good stuff. Well, guys, let's dive right into it. Um, Brian, you had a great hunt uh, last summer. Um, why don't you kind of talk about um, you know when you first booked the hunt and and your idea of you know get going for doll sheep and mountain caribou, and um, and then kind of once you talk about the hunt a little bit, then we'll kind of back up and we'll start from the beginning with, um, you know, prep for the hunt, travel for the hunt, and and, and so on.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I booked the hunt four years before we went on it with a good friend of mine, Mike Jones. You know, we've both been fortunate sure. to kill a couple of sheep and decided that, you know, we wanted to go on the doll sheep hunt. and. We booked it, and about six months before we were supposed to go, things kind of changed on us. The outfitter who we had booked with sold his operation, so I contacted Tavis, and Tavis had an opening, and I felt pretty comfortable after talking to him and talking to a bunch of his references and people that had nothing but great things to say about him. I talked to guys like Cam Foss and stuff like that, and they they had nothing but good things to say, so I was comfortable spending my money there and uh, making that change six months out was a little bit nerve-wracking, but once we got it all figured out, it was squared away, and... You know, at that point, once you book the hunt and you know you're going, it's, okay, you know, what do I need? What do I need to bring? How do I make this the best experience possible? Because we all know that, you know, you get caught with the wrong gear or not the right piece of equipment. It can make things a lot more difficult on an already pretty difficult hunt that has pretty high expectations with it because they're costly hunts. I mean, I was pretty confident that I'll probably not likely get to do a doll sheep hunt like that again in my lifetime, uh, maybe I will, um, but I went into it with the fact that this was going to be probably a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me, so obviously I wanted to make sure I had everything I could to make, you know, make it successful and also be in the best possible shape going into the hunt so that I could, you know, get the most out of every experience.
1: From the actual hunt, um, Brian, uh, and kind of go from when you landed, and and we'll cover a bunch of all the the stuff before that but from when you landed um and meeting your guide talk a little bit about how the hunt unfolded for you for both mountain caribou and for the doll sheep
3: well i mean everyone's hunt just like any hunt is going to be different my hunt um i probably couldn't have scripted it much better than the way it it worked out for me um i had gotten word i don't know about a week or so maybe two weeks before from some other hunters that had been up there hunting in Arctic Red of a ram that was pretty long, that they had, they had called him Curly, and nobody had sent me any pictures or anything of him, but I had just heard of him, and there was a you know kind of some talk out there, and people would send me a message who had just got back from Arctic Red about it, and so that was kind of pretty exciting anticipation, and, and you know, I, I mean, I got off the plane, and it's just like, it's remote and i mean it was a really awesome beautiful day the day that i got there so that was nice there was no bad weather um and i met my guide and we kind of hit it off right away my guy was guide was ryan johnson and he's i think he was 26 at the time but he had been out there you know hunting since day one of the season i think he'd been with arctic red for something around five years and uh, i mean i walked off the plane and he was like he was looking at a legal ram through the spotting scope, but it wasn't a ram that he was going to let me even consider, and I didn't even look through the spotting scope. It wasn't it wasn't the one way were after, and uh, we landed in a river bottom and basically hiked five miles up the bottom up of a river bottom um, to where we set up camp, and it wasn't a bad hike by any means. It was just a nice hike up a river bottom, some bouldery stuff. You know, we crossed the creek a bunch of different times because it had been fairly hot and fairly dry, so the creek wasn't real, um, really high or flowing. There were some spots that were... A little bit to navigate, but that was pretty much the first day. I mean, the first day is kind of a whirlwind, but as soon as you hit the ground in base camp, Tavis is, I mean, your, your gear is already loaded and you're just going through the food bag they made for you and switching things out. And then, I mean, he if the weather's clear, he's flying you out because the weather changes so fast that he wants you out in the field hunting as soon as he can. And it was Tavis and another pilot that were flying everybody out. So, I mean, everyone on day one, as soon as you landed in base camp, you were out as fast as he could get you to your guide who was already out in the field.
1: Gotcha. Um, And talk a little bit about, and we're going to go back through the food. We're going to go back through, you know, Arctic Red River provides the food. But, you know, Brian, I know you took a lot of your own food. I plan on taking my own food, um, and we'll get into that. Um, but you were fortunate to land, make camp, and get a mountain caribou on the ground really quick, and it allowed you to really focus then on doll sheep. Talk a little bit about how that unfolded.
3: Yeah, I mean, you can't hunt the fae you fly in, so you got to wait um, until the next day, and the next day, you know, obviously I, I was super amped up to get out of the tent and start glassing, and we had already seen sheep on the walk-in, and, and uh, so I got up a little earlier than... Our scheduled get up time was eight o'clock because I'm—I mean it's light for a long period of time—and I got up at seven and was drinking coffee and glass and sheep—and I, you know, heard some rocks roll behind me in the river bottom—and I turn around and there's a pretty solid mountain caribou standing there at about fifty yards, and um, I kind of yelled at my guide—not yelled, but just kind of got his attention—and he, <laughs> und- I'll never forget looking back over my shoulder as he unzips his tent and looks out his tent with his binoculars and he's like, "Yeah, you need to shoot that caribou." and I mean, 60 <laughs> yards, I made a good shot, and the caribou ran off about 300 yards and died, and so the caribou was done day one, maybe an hour
1: into the hunt, hour and a half into the <laughs> hunt.
2: Wow. With your bow, so
1: you've got a mountain caribou down. Um, and then, so what did you do? You guys took care of the caribou, I assume, that day, and then did you hike the meat back to um, the drop zone, or what? What? how did that work?
3: Yeah, I mean, just... I I think it's something that's important for everyone to know. For you, it's not such a big deal, Jay, because you're only hunting one animal. But for Kevin and Chase is that, you know, once you knock an animal down, your day is spent with that animal for the most part. And so you will, you know, get the animal cleaned up. And the guides are responsible for not only, you know, quartering it out and then skinning it, but they also have to turn the lips and turn the ears before they can call um, Tavis or the other pilot to come in and get it. So all that stuff has to be done before they call anyone to come in and get it. And, I mean, it takes several hours to turn the nose and turn the lips on a caribou, especially when you're out in the field and, you know, it's not like you're working on a table and things like that. Those guys are really good at doing that. And so we basically turned around and made that same five-mile hike back to the airstrip, turned over my caribou to the to the pilot, and then hiked back to camp. And so that was that was the extent of day one.
1: Brian, um, just so we don't forget it when when we're talking about um, all the prep and what have you, one of the things that I'm interested in is the creek crossings. And I know that a lot of the guys that go to the Northwest Territories, they either take, um, you know, like a Teva or, you know, some sort of flip-flop or a a, um, Crocs. Um, and then there's some guys that just wear, you know, their, their waterproof boots, they've got their gaiters, they've got their rain pants, and, you know, they, they, they tighten, um, or, you know, around the gaiter, basically trying to make them as, as airtight or watertight, um, so to speak, as possible, and just, you know, walk across the creek crossings to and fro, um, how did you handle the creek crossings, um, and then, with that, how did you handle the creek crossings? But I think when I go in July, I think the creeks and stuff will be flowing a lot, possibly more than when you were there. Um, any advice you could give me on on that and trying to keep my feet dry?
3: I mean, we never, we, I never took my boots off. All my crossings were with my boots and my gaiters. So I, was, I had the, the Kuyu Scarpa Rebel Ks, and then I had the, the Kuyu Gaiters on and every creek crossing was done that way. And, I mean, we had a couple crossings that were close to pushing over the top of the gators, but, I mean, we never switched out shoes. I did bring a trail shoe, a lightweight trail shoe, as opposed to a croc, um, and they did come in very handy. You're going to have, want to have something else to put your feet in once you get back from a long day of hiking to kind of let your feet recover, whether it be crocs or I had a, it was a Morel Bear Access 4 trail shoe that I, Utilized because um, it was a lot lighter. It was like half the weight of Crocs because I I wear a size twelve and Crocs and a size twelve are kind of bigger and bulkier than uh, the trail shoe, and I was able to just fold it down. and Jason Harrison recommended a trail shoe because he felt like if your boots something happened to where your boot you lost the ability to utilize your boots, you at least had a shoe that you could hike in if you had to.
1: Yeah, that's a great recommendation. So. Um, Brian, those—I mean, I'm trying to picture what those are. Are those like river shoes, or are they like a real, like trail shoe that you could run in?
3: No, they're a flat kind of uh, kind of look like, I guess, like a water shoe, but they're laced up, and um, there's just not much to them. But they allow they allow your feet to breathe. Um, You could you could get. I looked at taking the ultra trail shoes because they have some pretty lightweight ones too that are a little more aggressive as far as if you needed to hike with them but i would definitely recommend taking some i mean you got to take something i I didn't take crocs and we never use crocs to cross anything but every day the first thing you did when you got back to camp was take your boots off and put on your other shoes so that you could dry out your socks and everything
1: now these merrells could you um if you know if let's say that I'm going to encounter, you know, need a waist deep type water situations. I mean, could you cross, could you cross, it, are they stable enough that you could put them on and cross, you know, with your trekking poles uh, with yeah. those shoes? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cause What'd I've seen on the Instagram crossing? page, Arctic Red River Instagram page, I've seen some creek crossings and, you know, I'm a kind of a river rat myself being here in Colorado in the, the summer. And so I know how hard it is to wade across creeks myself, and um, so the idea of wading across in like a crock or something is just, I can't even fathom it, to be honest with you. Um, so I'll have to check into those boots. And But I hear most people saying they, they actually never, you know, they, they just use their uh, gaiters, uh, you know, the gator rain pants um, combo, and that seems to be the ticket. But I know if yeah. you're... If you know if you're going to spend a minute or two in that river, I mean you're 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 looking at possibly just soaking everything you got too.
3: Yeah, I mean your feet are going to be wet regardless. I mean I don't know that there's a way to keep your feet completely from being dry all the time. I mean the goal is to keep them as dry as possible, but uh, it's just a hard thing to do depending on how many river crossings you got. Chase or Kevin, one of you guys have a question?
4: Did you like going back and looking at it? Would you have done it differently? you know, taking the time to change out your shoes or just worn your rain pants or something?
3: No, I, d- I did have my rain pants on for some, some of the crossings, but I wouldn't have done anything differently than what I did. It was it was fine. Um, you know, I had three pairs of socks, three pairs of liner socks, which were they were. they I was carrying Swiftwick 7-liner socks that I, Dar recommended after your guys' goat hunt, Jay, and then I had three pairs of Kuyu socks. And those Swiftwick socks, which are nice about them, is that they don't lose their elasticity at all, and they dry out really fast. So uh, they were real beneficial for me, but I wouldn't have changed the way I did it. And I think if you're going to change shoes every time you cross creek, you're going to be spending a lot of time changing shoes. Gotcha. That's right.
1: Uh, the Aspire 7, the Swiss, Swiftwick, um, Eric Johnson, a friend of mine, lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, um, has com- completed the Ironman several times, and he's an avid uh, sh- sheep hunter. Um, Been on a bunch of dull sheep and stone sheep and all sorts of sheep hunts. He's the one that recommended those um, liner socks. Uh, I'm curious if Chase or Kevin um, have have looked in or have worn those liner socks. One of the things I liked about wearing those liners um, on the goat hunt, and, and from everything I read, is that if you wear liner socks, most people say you minimize your risk of getting blisters. You can still get blisters. Um, but Eric recommended them and Darn, and I both liked them. Brian, did you have, um, any issues with wearing those liner socks? And it's a little bit different feel because sometimes in your boots, you almost feel like when you're going downhill, you, you feel a little bit like your foot's kind of sliding somewhat. Did you get any of that sensation with the, with the Spire 7 liner socks?
3: No, I mean, I really, I tried a couple different pairs of liner socks and I really liked, um, those Swiftwick socks, I, I thought they were definitely a must have. If I go on another mountain hunt like that, I'll definitely take them.
1: Okay. Um, and then you had talked about you had a five mile walk up a creek drainage. Um, from talking to the other hunters, talking with Mike Jones, was it pretty common that most guys fly into a creek drainage and then they have a hike either up or down that drainage? Um, So you're basically following a river system no matter where they drop you off?
3: Yes, you're definitely landing in a river bottom and then hiking up the river bottom to get to where you want to go.
1: Okay, so creek crossings and what have you, that's completely inevitable. Um, Yeah, you're going to have creek crossings. Yeah. Okay. You guys have any questions for that? I kind of want to back up now and kind of talk about... um, Travel planning and, and some of the tips that Brian is going to have for us.
2: Yeah, Do did, uh, did any of the guys wear like little lightweight wiggies or packed um, waiters or anything, or most of them just use gaiters?
3: I didn't see anybody that had gaiters, or, or I'm sorry, that had waiters or anything like that. Everybody was just wearing gaiters.
1: Okay. Now, Chase, I'll tell you, um, Craig Dunlap, who's hunted. Um, coos deer and and bighorn sheep or desert sheep with me he's been to arctic red several times and he sent me a link for those wiggy uh waiters and he swears by them um he he, he's adamant about those have you had any um success wearing those or talk to anyone that has worn those because sounds like you can pretty much just slip those on and use them at every creek crossing and and keep everything dry have you had any experience with those
2: no i I used waders on my moose hunt back in 2014, but the guide had told us that we were pretty much going to live in waders. It was just a swampy marsh. So I I had heavier-duty waders and wading boots, but I've never dealt with the lightweight ones. That's why I was wondering if any of those Northwest Territories guys use them because sometimes people use different stuff in different locations, and I've heard about those, just never used them. Yeah, I mean, Craig definitely, he sent me several messages
1: about them and said, he's like, just trust me, you want to to get them, you should get them. Um, I haven't gotten them yet, um, but they definitely are on my list um, here to check out. Um, Brian, let's back up, um, and I know Kevin wanted to know a little bit before we even go into the travel about your prep, um, physical prep for yourself for getting your body and your feet in condition you know ready for the trip how did you handle that and how did you feel um, did you feel what you had done was sufficient for the hunt that you had
3: I did I felt like I was definitely solid um, out there and good to go Um, I talked to a lot of people trying to figure out what was the best overall way to prepare Um, I talked to Brendan Burns and you know obviously Brendan's been on a lot of sheep hunts a lot more than I've ever been on and he said flat out, he, he said you have to hike with weight in your pack and the boots that you're going to wear, and you got to go long ways. Um, and so I, what I did, obviously, I hiked down here in Phoenix, and I would do five, six, seven mile hikes in Phoenix, um, obviously in the summertime. That's tough to do, but it's good because your feet sweat, and so you kind of harden up those soft spots. But I did um, San Francisco Peaks and Flag twice. Um, and then I did Mount Baldy once. Both of them I did it carrying about a 40, 45 pound pack. And I was going for time. It wasn't like a leisurely hike. I was moving, you know, as good as I could go just to get my heart rate up and things like that. And then in town, you know, I do CrossFit like five days a week. That's what I do to stay in shape. And I mean, whatever it is you do to stay in shape, I just felt that the cardio aspect of CrossFit helped me, you know, be ready to rock and roll. And. I think just breaking in your boots and being comfortable with wearing that weight on your back um, helps you tremendously be prepared. And then as far as like my diet was concerned, I I pretty much regularly hang out about 200 to 205 uh, as my pretty normal weight. Before that trip, I dropped down to like 190, 192 um, on the way, you know, getting ready for that trip and just tried to kind of lean myself up a little bit knowing that I was going to be going into it you know hardcore i wasn't dieting so to say i was just eating better and not drinking you know not drinking a beer not drinking any alcohol at all i basically i didn't drink for six months leading up to the hunt and that was just my choice and uh so i mean i felt like i was really good to go going into the hunt because i didn't want to hold myself back from being successful on my own trip
1: good stuff um guys you have any questions for brian on in regards to prep um Prepping body. Did
2: you? Uh, did you? Feel,
4: did you oh,
1: go ahead, Chase.
2: Did you feel good during the hunt, Brian? Like your prep paid off and and everything was good while you were out there. I did. Um, the only thing I would
3: recommend, and I think it's super hard to dictate for a lot of people, is that you need to carry heavy weight downhill because it is just. It's hard to get that downhill um, walking in with heavy weight on. It's easy to go uphill. It's easier on your knees. It's easier on everything, and most of your trails are going uphill. But, like, if you go to Sunrise Chase for the archery shoot and you get an afternoon, throw on 70-pound pack or 60-pound pack and go up, right up to the top ski lift and don't walk down the trail. Just walk down the, the walk down the ski slope if you can because that is something that when you're coming off those big slopes, because basically your day will start, every day you will start by hiking to the top of whatever mountain you're going to hunt. And so for me, it was about a two-mile hike to the top, and it wasn't bad. Um, And once you get to the top, you basically stay on the top and work down the ridges, looking into each drainage on both sides, trying to figure out where the sheep are at. And at the end of the day, you hike off the top down that big, steep um, ridge that you hiked up. And so getting used to... I would say the hardest thing, and some of the guys talked about it when I was there, was just getting used to carrying weight downhill was something that was, it's, it's harder on your knees. The trekking poles are really come in handy. I carry two trekking poles, and I would highly recommend carrying two trekking poles um, all the time um, just because it seemed to help a lot, and it, it seemed to kind of take a little bit of the stress off your knees. But that is something that I would definitely work on if you can do it.
1: Brian, when you talk about working on it, do you agree that if you did that too much in training that you could ultimately end up like injuring yourself? Or, or do you feel like it's important to do that and actually punish yourself with the weight going downhill because you're going to be doing that? Or do you feel like being fresh and in really good shape that you're just going to have to suffer through that? I'm curious your thoughts because, you know, if you guys are all young bucks i'm i'm 45 i think i got you all beat um on the age category and one thing for me that that is definitely not uh lasting like i was in my 20s and 30s are my knee joint and if i do too much weight going downhill um you know it it can it can screw me up for a couple days i'm just curious if you would say yes absolutely you need to do it for sure um I mean, I'm not,
3: you know, everyone's body composition is different, and you got to work yourself to your limit. Um, obviously, the week before your hunt, I wouldn't recommend you doing much of anything, because um, so, I don't think, you don't want to go into the hunt being sore, you want to go into the hunt being fresh, but I mean, push yourself in your preparation um, as hard as you can, you know, I mean, I did some hikes in August, going into some coos deer country, putting cameras out and stuff like that, where I was carrying, you know, I carried in six gallons of water, those Costco water jugs in my Kuyu pack, you know, all uphill for like five miles, and it was 105
1: that's 50, degrees that's outside. That's 50 pounds right there.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, push yourself as much as you can, because if you push yourself there, I mean, then it won't be as bad when, you, um, when you're when you out in the out in the field. I mean, Mike Jones, I don't know if you guys saw the picture of Mike Jones, but he's carrying a Kuyu 7200 pack after he killed a sheep, and he's got every piece of gear he had with him in that pack with his sheep his horns, his bow attached to it, and Mike's not a real big guy, and that pack is damn near as tall as Mike.
2: <laughs>
1: and didn't he didn't he lose both his big toenails? And
3: they actually um, just—I think they just fell off like a month ago—is what he told me. <laughs> so, but that was from going downhill. I mean, your toes get jammed up in the front of your boots, and I mean, it's just—it's—it's it's part of the deal. I mean, you got to be able to to. To kind of lock your feet into place. One of the things that made a big deal for, difference for me, and Dar pointed it out to me, is that I went on the YouTube and looked at a different couple different ways to, to lace your boots up. And Dar found one for those Rebel K's that worked really well to lock that lock your heel in place. And I'm telling you, that made a huge difference in the way those boots felt. So
1: yeah, whatever boots you have, I used that have on if, the goat hunt last year, and and that really helped. And up here in Colorado, um, I've been using that lacing system and it really keeps your heel, um, locked in. And, uh, for those listeners that don't know, um, I'll, I'll find that video or find a link and we'll put it either on my Instagram or on my show notes or something. So you guys can find that. Um, if, if, if you're interested, send me a message, um, either through Instagram or my email and I'll make sure you get it. But that, that, uh, lacing system is, is money for sure. I've got a question, Brian. You talk about every morning. So, so you you did a five mile hike up. You set camp, and then every morning you said you would hike up two miles to to, you know, look into different drainages. Um, in speaking about my hunt specifically, and then these guys, if they have questions, they can ask you. I have the first hunt, and from what I understand, those rams and those sheep will be out in the open. They'll be mostly at the top of of all of the peaks, Um, but from what I've heard is that actually you can spot a lot of the sheep from the bottom, find one you want to, you know, look at closer and then hike up to it. Do you feel like there's any tactical or strategy difference in going later as opposed to when I would be going and do you feel like that um, every guide that has their hunter out there is the same thing? They set a camp and then from there you don't take your whole camp, you hike up Two miles and you know work ridge
3: length uh i mean based obviously i've only been to arctic red one time on that experience and based on my experience there you on your hunt jay you're likely to move more and i think carry your camp on your back more often um because you're going to be looking for the sheep trying to find where the sheep are at on uh chase and kevin's hunt Those guides will have already been out there for, I think, three rounds of hunters. So they're going to know what mountain range has what sheep in it. Now, it doesn't mean they're not going to find a sheep that's new that's moved in, but they're definitely going to have a better feel for where the sheep are hanging out and where they're going to be looking. I chose to go on the third hunt because I was told by some people that have been on that hunt multiple times that... The later in the season, the guides have things well figured out, um, and the rams have moved down because the weather has been has pushed into them. The ram I killed, the two other hunters before me tried to kill him, and the first hunter, the ram just sat up on this big ledge, and they could never get him killed. And then the second hunter, they ended up shooting the ram that was with him because he was just kind of over the roll, and he kind of escaped out of, <coughs> out of the deal. So, I mean, I guess... Your hunt, you're probably going to be doing more reconnaissance where I think Chase and Kevin's hunt, they're going to go into it, and I think those guys are going to have an idea of, hey, you know, I saw this big ram over here, but my hunter was 70 years old on the last hunt and couldn't get to the ram, so I'm going to take you guys in there to look for this ram. Makes
1: sense. Uh, And do you feel like probably on on my hunt that, that, we will be camping at the top of some of these ridge lines. And, and I hear that most of the camping is done in the river bottom. You feel like I'll be carrying my camp, you know, to the top and, and camping up on, you know, a precipice or up, you know, up high where, you know, you can work off several drainages, or do you feel like, you know, most of what you heard is you set camp and then you hike from there and with, you know, your, just your day stuff.
3: I don't know that you'll be camping up at the higher stuff. What I do think it will be likely is that you may hike over a pass and down to the next drainage to get to the next set of mountains, Um, and you may camp up on top. But remember, I mean, a lot of the water's down low, so that's the benefit to being down low because you don't have to carry any water. Uh, I mean, when you're hiking in to your camp, there's no there's no reason to carry any water in your water bladder or anything like that. You just have your Nalgene bottle. And when you stop and you need a drink, you fill it up right out of the creek and take a drink and then empty it out and start walking again. Uh, at the beginning of the day, you'll fill up your 2-liter and your Nalgene bottle and hike up the mountain so that you have water with you. But, I mean, you won't be carrying water. So when you factor in your weight um, for hiking into camp and all that stuff, you do not need to factor in. You, you don't have to worry about, oh, my gear is 60 pounds. How am I going to carry another three gallons of water, it's going to put me at like 72 pounds or whatever. You don't have to worry about that because when you're hiking in to camp and things like that, you're just going to reach down in the water, fill up your Nalgene, drink as much as you want, dump it out, and hike on to the camp. And so water, you're not carrying quantities of water.
1: And speaking of that, um, no one that you heard of actually purified or did any sort of filtering of, of the water at all. Everybody just drank straight out of the creeks, right? That's right. And, and
3: Tavis says everybody. that I mean you can. Tavis says you can bring a purifier if you want, but he's been guiding up there and up there for forever, and I mean they've never had any issues.
1: Okay. Let's let's back up here for a second, and let's talk a little bit about the travel logistics. Um, I know, Brian, I'm going from Denver to Edmonton. Um, you had recommended to stay at that Edmonton hotel right there at the airport. Um, and I've got a a, a, a reservation there, uh, and then from from there, let's see, I fly into uh, the next day. I actually go on uh, uh, what is it, Canadian North, and I go from Edmonton to Yellowknife. Um, but talk about the travel aspect from packing your bags, your gear, to traveling to Edmonton, Yellowknife then into Norman Wells. Talk talk about that.
3: I mean, my biggest thing is avoid L.A. So for you, it's not an issue because you're going to be leaving from Denver. And for uh, Kevin and Chase, I think I already told you guys this, stay out of L.A. So for me, I flew through C- to Phoenix to Seattle, Seattle to Edmonton. People in Seattle were just easier to deal with. They're used to seeing guns. They're used to seeing people come back with dead animals. It wasn't a huge issue uh, to do that. And it was super smooth from F- I mean, our flights. Every flight was extremely smooth. <laughs> I stayed at the Nisku Hotel, which they had just remodeled. They had a good sports bar there. Um, it was about 10-minute drive from the airport, and it was cheap. So that was one of the reasons I stayed there. Tavis recommended it. it was a, I think we paid 114 bucks a night, and the, the sports bar they had there had good food. So that's where we stayed. And then on the way back, we stayed there, too, and they had a full-on box chest freezer in, like, their extra room that we were able to put the capes in and put everything in um, to get another hard freeze on them before we flew them home. So that's where I stayed in Edmonton. Everything was totally smooth there. There's a a shuttle picks you up. You usually get into Edmonton at, like, noon or 1 o'clock. And so you can go to Walmart or their version of it. They have Walmart there. So if you didn't want to fly with certain mountain house meals or there were certain things you wanted to pick up, you could get a cab or an Uber take it to Walmart and get some extra things. Um, One of the things that you don't need any candy bars, any junk food as far as that is concerned because Tavis will have all of that. If there's any crackers or chips or things like that that you like, um, you might want to pick that stuff up, whether it be Cheez-Its or things like that um, or bring that with you. They had almost every flavor of Mountain House at the Walmart there, so I mean, but Tavis does a great job providing all sorts of different flavors of Mountain House. So I don't really think you need to bring any of that stuff. I would bring some strong bug spray for you, Jay. I don't think I don't think Chase and Kevin are going to have to worry about that. Um, Ironically enough, the airlines will not let you travel with. DEET that is 99% or something like that, so either pack it in a different type of packaging that doesn't say that, or don't tell them you have it. Um, They also have an issue if you have a stove that has been used before. So, your stove is brand new, if they ask, and it's never been used. And you don't need to fly with any gas canisters or anything like that.
1: So, does... Tavis have the um, gas up there? Yep,
3: yep. He's got all the gas canisters you can stand. Um, I did not bring a pocket rocket or anything. Um, My guide had a um, jet boil, and it was fine for both of us. I would, if I did it again, maybe bring a pocket rocket, not a jet boil, just so on rainy days I could cook my own, heat up my own coffee or whatever when I'm sitting in my tent. It was not a big issue for me. Um, but it would be a decent feature if you had the ability to do it.
1: Quick question about the new stove. They don't exactly open it up and look at it, but if they ask you, it's a new stove. Is that what I'm gathering? Yes, that is what I'm telling you.
3: It's weird enough because you can fly with a lighter from Edmonton to Yellowknife because they allow you to smoke not on the plane but like in the airports, and... But for whatever reason, your stove can't have been used before. So those are just a couple of the little nuanced things that um, were interesting. Um, When we flew from Edmonton, you fly from Edmonton to Yellowknife, Yellowknife to Norman Wells, and you basically deplane for a minute and then get back on the plane and fly to Norman Wells. It's a half-day deal. You'll land at noon in Norman Wells. And be prepared that if the weather's good, Northright will be there, and they may say, hey, Tavis says you're coming now. And so they will they may take you right from there right right off that plane and put you right on a Canadian North plane and fly you right out to base camp right then. That did not happen for us and it was fine because it gave us a chance to sight in our bows, go to the rifle range, double check our gun zeros. Um, we stayed at the only hotel I believe that's in Norman Wells which is the Heritage Hotel and they had a truck that they let us drive to go to the rifle range and shoot our rifles. Um the owner of the heritage Hotel was a, I think we talked about this once before but was a little cranky um, understand that if you book a, a room and things change like you land and they say nope, we're taking you to base camp right now you're not getting your
2: money back it just is what it is. So with that so, right would you also would you, would you book go ahead chase. That, go ahead chase would you book that room or would you just buy it when you get there and hope it, hope it's available? I would book it, and
3: it's going to sound really weird, especially for you, but believe it or not, there's a huge group of Asian individuals that will come up there, and there's a huge thing about um, getting it on with your wife under the Northern Lights. And so you will be seeing the Northern Lights, and so it's very likely that a bunch of those rooms could get booked up. So it is very weird. I tell
1: my wife she needs to come? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the deal is. For for me, Chase, uh, the deal is is that you're spending a bunch of money going on this hunt, so why even worry about it?
1: Right, yeah. Um, I, bo- I booked I, the room knowing that it might not ever happen. I've already booked it. And the thing is,
3: honestly, is that if you got there and – there wasn't a room available. You really could just roll out your tent. There's a golf course literally like, I don't know, 100 yards away, and you could roll your tent out and sleep right there. And I don't think – the guy might grumble a little bit, but he's not going to he's not gonna really bitch about it too much, I don't think. Yeah. So, But uh, the rooms are good enough. Um, they have a huge storage room, which is super nice, and uh, the storage room allows you to leave – so basically, when you at the Heritage Hotel, when you fly to um, into Base Camp, you leave your bow case, you leave your rifle cases. Chase, you guys will leave probably some of your video equipment cases that you can um, there. So when you leave the Heritage Hotel to fly into Base Camp, you are your backpack is packed with whatever you are taking on your hunt, and you are carrying your gun in your hand on the plane, along with your bow.
2: Okay.
1: And are you wearing your gear like you were going to head, like you need to be ready to walk straight out and fly right into the bush from from the Heritage Hotel?
3: Yes, I was I was wearing every, my gear. I flew with my boots. I flew with a pair of pants that I knew I could wear on the hunt, and I had um, my main jacket and my backpack with me. So that I had all of that stuff in the event, and I had all my optics with me, like my tripod and my my binoculars and my spotting scope with me. So that in the event that something um, happened or got lost, I at least had enough to get by. And for Chase and Kevin, we flew, Mike and I had one case that had both of our bows in it, and then we had one case with both rifles in it. And we were bow hunting, that was our focus, and so each of our guides carried our rifles rather than their own rifles, and they were fine with that as long as it was a thirty caliber gun. They, didn't, they just didn't want to be carrying like some 6.5 Creed Creedmoor if they had to deal with a bear or something. Okay. And um, they're a little hard on the guns. My guide was real good, Mike's guide was pretty rough, and it turned out to be my, they were both my guns, so they were a little rough on the guns, but they were okay. Um, but they did carry our guns, so that cut us down to two gun cases, and then Mike and I each had a a fairly large size duffel bag, and on the way back, we combined our clothes into one duffel bag, and then we put both sheep horns and both sheep capes in one duffel bag and flew them back with us as they a checked frozen. bag. Um, the capes were frozen, the horns were skull-capped, um, and nobody said anything. In in Edmonton, the lady's like, man, you guys were successful. Congratulations. Have a great day. And that was it. Nice. On the way back, you clear customs in Edmonton. So unlike some places where, like, you would normally land in Seattle and you would think you would clear in Seattle, you clear customs in Edmonton. So make sure you allot yourself enough time when you go to the airport on your way home to clear customs. I did not realize that. And so we cut it a little bit close, but we were fine.
2: So you don't actually stop in in Seattle for customs. You, you just change planes in Seattle and go to Phoenix? That's correct. Okay.
3: Yep, you clear you clear U.S. customs in Edmonton. Okay, perfect. So you fill out the paperwork. And uh, we had all the paperwork and all that stuff. And it was There was no issues with any of that stuff. It just takes a little bit of time. And so, you know, make sure you give yourself enough time. Um, I didn't realize that. And so we cut it a little tight, but it wasn't bad.
4: And that's so, just coming home, right?
3: That's coming home. Going there, I mean, there's no issues. It's just coming back, going there, you already landed in Edmonton and so you clear customs in Edmonton with your gun. You know, um, you got to. You guys have to get that border patrol form filled out and signed. And so for your, for
1: four you guys, form. Yes, and you can and print it out online. Go ahead. That has to be filled out before, correct? Like uh, yeah. At at the Phoenix Airport at U.S. Customs or at the Denver Airport at U.S. Customs, like you you have to have that filled out before you come back into the U.S. Correct?
3: Yeah, what I would do for Chase and them is, you know, whatever guns you guys are bringing, one of you guys come down here, fill have the form filled out, and just drive to the customs office at Sky Harbor. It's on the south side of Sky Harbor. It'll take two seconds. It'll be super fast, and then you just keep that form inside your gun case the whole time.
2: Now, so do you, you think like a week before?
3: Yeah, you can get it a week before. You'll be fine.
2: Gotcha. Do you claim any but, other um, items like cameras or anything like that or just your guns?
3: I just claim my guns. Um, I don't think I put on put on them that I had bows or anything like that or optics or anything like that. You might have a little more money chase in uh, camera equipment than I had because, I mean, all I had of value was a pair of 15s and a spotting scope. Okay. So I mean, obviously, I know some of your lenses can be pretty pricey. So I mean, you may need to claim some of that stuff. I don't. I don't know that it so would be a Chase, huge issue. when cause... we
1: cross into Mexico, when we come back into the U.S., they typically they they don't care about camera equipment and all of that. You can check and make sure. Um, what they're checking for is they want to make sure that you didn't buy that in Canada and bring it back. If you if you did, it would be subject to a tax. Um. And, and I would tell you that if any of the equipment or if you filled out your 4457 form, if you're taking the same gun, you you don't have to do a second 4457. You can use that for forever. Um, that 4457 form, you know, I've, I've used the same uh, 4457 form for my 257 Weatherby for probably 10, 12, 13 years. So I don't know what you're planning on taking. Um, But if you've already done it, then then it's good to go. If you need to add anything to it or if you're taking a different rifle, then, of course, you've got to do a new one. Okay. And there's
3: plenty of times where people have crossed chase and they've never asked for that form. But, of course, the one time that you don't have it, they're going to ask for it. Right. And I don't think – Bob Griego went last year with Jennifer Griego, and Jennifer has a ton of, like, medical equipment that she has to take with her, and I don't think they had any issues with trying to have – have to claim any of that stuff because they brought it
1: with them. Okay. Yeah. So I Brian, think. I what think about be... um, locks on um, the gun cases? You have to have two TSA approved locks. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, you have to have two TSA approved locks. I mean, I just any I, I did a pad any padlock on the uh, the cases, and then your ammunition has to be in a different case than the gun. So just be aware of that. And I mean, we only took. I think we took three boxes around both both of the guns we took were my guns and they're both chambered in the same caliber and they shot the same round so I took we took three boxes of ammunition we obviously didn't need that but I mean you never want to be short on ammunition Um, and then I put the 4457 forms in my name and all and I think the reason I put them in my name is because you had to pay a gun permit fee or something like that and if they were if I put one in my name and one in Mike's name we would have had to pay two fees and I just paid one fee.
2: And is that okay. the $25 fee that you pay right there to them? Yep.
3: Yeah, it's, when you get off the plane in Edmonton, you'll come through Customs, they'll check your guns,
2: and you pay them right there. Okay,
4: gotcha. Hey, Brian, real Brian, quick, when did you uh, did you get in touch with, with Tavis or someone before uh, and find out about the thirty caliber with the guide carrying it for you?
3: No, I didn't know that, um, but I... I they, when I got there, you know, it was up to the guide if he was willing to carry your gun. And I get it because, I mean, my gun, you know, had a 20-power scope on it, and my guide's carrying a Remington Model 700 with iron sights on it so simply to deal with a bear. But he had no okay. issues um, carrying my gun, and my Mike's guide was the same way. He did not care at all.
1: Okay. And for you, you guys, I mean... Bear, bears. Um, go ahead, Brian. But Then let's talk about bears and what to expect.
3: Um, for you guys, I was just going to say, Chase and Kevin, I mean, if you guys carried two bows in and you carried a rifle in, I mean, you could always leave one in camp and stuff like that. But, I mean, obviously you want to minimize all the extra crap you got.
2: Right.
3: Bears, for us, I mean, we saw bears almost every day. The only, good, the only bad part about shooting a caribou from your tent is there's a blood trail leading right back to your tent. <laughs> and so, um, we watched multiple bears go to my carcass, and we eventually watched one remove the carcass um, from the drainage. And the last night that we came back after I shot my my sheep, it was like three in the morning, and we had to walk by the kind of the area of the carcass. So it was a little bit nerve, unnerving, but we didn't have any issues. I think last year they sh- they had to shoot or put down two bears. Um during the time they were th- during the the season, and so there's going to be bear encounters, and just be ready for it, and always, I mean, be on alert and just be aware of where you're at. And I think the most common issues with the bears are down on the river bottoms because you got the kind of willows and stuff like that that are thicker and taller, and or when it's at night because you just come around the corner and you can't see them. And I mean, and typically they'll give you plenty of space. But we did see a couple of big bears, but we never had any issues with bears.
1: Ryan, talking about river bottoms, tell us a little bit about the country, um, try and relate it to anything that that we can relate to from an Arizona standpoint. Um, And one of the things I've heard about the NWT is it doesn't have near the brush like like Alaska does, but from your perspective, when you talk about willows, like are you talking like fighting through willows, you know, in most places, or is it, you know, walking around willows?
3: No, I mean, there's not much brush. I mean, I I haven't been to Alaska and hunted where you guys hunted for goats. I know you had to bushwhack for a long period of time, but you you basically have to walk through a, a couple hundred yards of willows, but, I mean, you're just walking through them. It's not like you're trying to bust through them and bushwhack around them and stuff like that, it's it's not bad at all. I mean, you're able to walk through it with ease. And then when you're coming up the river bottoms, you're hiking in the bottom. So there's nothing in your way other than, you know, a couple of creek crossings and things like that. And the river bottoms are anywhere from, you know, 150, 200 yards across to some places where they might narrow up to, you know, 75 yards across. The country itself is... Up on the mountains and on the edges and things like that, it's pretty open. You know, I mean, all you have is just you know rolling kind of like grassy slopes and things like that. And so, I mean, if a sheep's there, you're going to see it. There are some cuts and nooks and crannies and things like that that they can get into. And then on Chase and Kevin's hunt, it wouldn't be uncommon for the sheep to push down even into some of the timber. Depending on the weather, I mean, the benefit to those later season hunts is all I was told is that, you know, based on the fact that those sheep will push down into that, into the lower country, into the timber, make them a little more accessible. I mean, you may even, it wouldn't surprise me based on what they were telling me if you guys were able to shoot a ram literally from the river bottom because they could push down
1: much lower. Brian, let's talk about the amount of light. Um, You were there in August. I'm going to be there uh, July 15th. I've heard that virtually you don't even need a a headlamp or a flashlight of any kind because even at the darkest point, it's almost like it's daybreak or or sundown type lighting situations. Yeah, you won't need a light at all, Jay. You're
3: you're not going going to need a light at all. Uh, Kevin and Chase are definitely going to need a light because it's going to be dark probably five or six hours of the day Um, just because it's later on in the season. For me, I think think it was dark for us for about four hours, and they say that basically every day it seems like it progressively gets darker by 10 to 15 minutes or stays darker for 10 to 15 minutes, but um, Jay, I mean, uh, you'll only need a, a lightweight light, if anything, and then Kevin and you guys, you'll need to take lights for sure, because you'll need them getting off the mountain and things like that. So I took two lights. I had um, both of my lights were Petzls, and one of them took regular lithium batteries, and one of them took a rechargeable battery.
1: Let's let's talk about, um, you you were talking about optics. Well, you were talking about, um, you know, if there's a sheep there, you're going to see them all of us are coos deer hunters um and you know are used to glassing and glassing extensively um from you know just a total newbie going up there would there be a certain type of terrain i mean from what i understand you just look for green grass and anywhere you see green grass you're likely to see a dull sheep are there any tips that you could give for you know hitting the ground running trying to you know spot um dull sheep as quickly and efficiently as possible brian
3: Man, I mean, Jay, on your hunt, I think those sheep will be anywhere. They'll be in the cliffs in the rocks all over the place, and I don't know that they're going to be just in green grass. Um, They're definitely in green grass, but, I mean, on your hunt, you're going to find them at some of the highest places you can imagine. I think for Chase and Kevin, they're going to move down lower. Um, You may have to be picking stuff through some trees and things like that and getting a look at the sheep and figure out what you're looking at. So, I mean, they're pretty... I mean, if they're there, you're going to see them. And a lot, even if you're just walking, you know, you'll see them with your naked eye, and so you'll have to sit down and bust out your tripod and figure out what you're looking at or bust out your uh, spotting scope and get a look at, you know, what kind of ram you're evaluating and looking at. Um, based on Talk, talk, just,
1: talk about optics, what, what you would take, what you'd recommend we would take.
3: Um, I took a pair of, I took my wife's 1250 ELs, because they were lightweight, and then I, d- I took a uh, Leupold rangefinder with me, and then I had an STS 65mm spotting scope that I took, and I carried all of it. Um, I had a lightweight Nikon, tri- or I'm sorry, a lightweight uh, slick tripod. It was a carbon fiber tripod, smaller than what I would normally carry on like on a coos deer hunt because I was going for light as lightweight as possible. And then it, the one I actually took was a it was a slick carbon fiber six thirteen CF, and then I had the outdoorsman's pan head with the uh, outdoorsman's ado- uh, adapter. I took the outdoorsman's pan head over the pistol grip because I wanted to be able to digiscop,e and the pistol grip doesn't work for digiscoping because when you put heavier weight on the back of it, it pulls it pulls the uh, pulls the it can't hold
1: the weight. Did you under. feel like that tripod was was sufficient, and did you feel like the 12s? I was planning to take 1042 EL Swarovski. Um Do you think I'll be fine with the 10 by 42s and then having my um, 65 millimeter spotting scope? Yeah,
3: yeah. I think the 10s will be fine, and your spotting scope will be fine. You're going to be using your spotting scope more than, for the most part, for everything. And so, I mean, just to kind of get a look at the sheep. Kevin, what was that?
4: So, with your spotting scope, me and Chase... You know we're we're going to be hunting together so we've been going through for the last couple months and really breaking down gear you know and talking about one of us taking you know the tent and trying to you know make a compromise to where we're we're both in one tent but the one that's not carrying a tent we've been tossing back and forth taking a a Swarovski 95 um, for digiscoping and all that with it only being dark five hours out of the day you know not much but do you think we'd gain anything with taking a 95 with that that weight difference to a 65, or is that just uh, stupid?
3: I mean, it's all what you want to do. I mean, the, the 95 is big. Right. And I think you're going to get some incredible digiscoping with it, and it's an awesome thing. Do I think you need it? No. Um, and you guys are talking about sharing a tent. I don't know what tent you're taking. Just make sure it's a tent that's big enough to give you guys – that has a vestibule so that you guys can dry your clothes out so I was in a it, the Kuyu Mountain Star two person tent with a, aluminum poles and it was big enough for me there's no way that I would share it with anybody else right um, my guide had a oh my gosh the, I can't remember the name of it super common tent it's the um, it'll come to me but it's the green they're the kind of the dark green tents that uh, are real well known and it had a big vestibule uh, like in the front Hilbert? of it, which would... Yes.
4: Hilbert.
3: My guy had a Hilberg tent, and that's what he took. And it had a huge... I mean, the, the vestibule part of it was almost as big as the tent itself. And what's nice about that is you can dry your gear. Gotcha. So I'm not saying you can't share a tent, but just make sure you have some way of being able to spread your gear out because you're going to get rained on. You're going to get weather. You may spend... A good day in the tent and the nice part about having the vestibule is that you can kind of get out of the tent sit there you know get up and move around a little bit and gives you a little bit of space to move around I I would not have wanted to share a tent with someone on
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna the, second that I'm gonna second yeah. there's no one in this world that I'd want to be in a tent for 10 you know <laughs> 10 days so take that however you guys want um, but I, if it were me, I would take my own tent.
3: And I, I think that you will, uh, I think you're going to like having your own tent, in my opinion. Uh, I know you guys have a lot of extra camera gear, so you got other things that you got to think about. So, I mean, that's something that you're going to have to make a decision on.
4: Yeah, this is all based towards camera gear, nothing to do with the, the whole northern lights and all that weird stuff.
3: <laughs> well, that's good to know. I mean, I know you guys are pretty close, but I'm glad you clarified
1: that. <laughs> I'm glad we've got clarification on that mountain project, guys. We've clarified that good.
3: Yes, for um, sure.
1: Well, so just to recap, Brian, a lightweight tripod, 10s tens, tens or 12s around your neck, no need for 15s. Um, 65 millimeter spotting scopes fine. Um, from a from a standpoint of you know like what we're used to deer glassing, like are you saying like you can see sheep and you'll spot them like three or four miles away on another mountain? Yes. Or are most of the sheep that you see are like you know three or four five hundred yards and you can you know get good video and stuff through 65 millimeter. Or were there situations where, you know, at 65 millimeter, four miles away, you still can't even tell what they are?
3: You're going to be looking at, I mean, you're going to see sheep at three, four miles away. I mean, there are white dots on green mountain You will see them. So 65 millimeter is going to be cool to have. Do I think you need it? I mean, the 95 will be cool to have. Do you need it? No. Um, your guide's not likely to have a 95 millimeter either, um, and it, each guide varies on what they carry. My my guide had a Swarovski spotting scope, so he's good to go. So even if you're not sure about if you're going to bring it or not, bring it with you to base camp. And if your guide doesn't have a good spotting scope or has a mediocre spotting scope, say, hey, do you want to take this and try it out? And most of those guys are going to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll try that out. You know, I don't know when you bust out a 95 if they're going to be like, what the hell is that? But, you know, you, I think that it's worth having. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just a couple things to touch on for travel. So Tavis will provide you with um, an ice chest if you want to bring some of your meat back. I would tell you guys it was very minimal expense to bring your meat back and to um, have an extra bag. Alaskan Airlines was 75 bucks for a bag over 50 pounds and they were $50 for an extra bag. Uh, Canadian North was... Uh, extra bag was 35 bucks. If it was 50 to 70 pounds, it was 75 bucks, And if it was over 70 pounds, it was 100 bucks. So the oversized bag fees or extra bag fees were pretty minimal, in my opinion. So I would definitely, definitely bring your sheep horns and your cape back um, in a checked bag. So however you want to do that, I would definitely uh, manage to do that. You may end up changing your flight. And if you do, it will most likely be with Canadian North, and it's a $50 fee to change your flight. Not a big deal. Do not fly with your trekking poles. They will not let you on the plane with them. So make sure your trekking poles are checked in your bag.
4: What about lithium batteries?
3: Um, Well, like anything else, they tell you you can't fly with lithium batteries. Um, I packed most of mine in my bag, but inevitably I've always got a lithium or two in my backpack somewhere. And I've never had anybody give me an issue about it. But you can also buy them right there if you needed to. But all of my batteries, that you bring that up, everything I had was lithium. I didn't carry any regular batteries because, obviously, we all know they last a lot longer. Right. Uh, Chase and Kevin, if I, I, I guess, Jay, you want to move on to some clothing stuff?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just dive into it. Uh, for me,
3: I took the Alpine pants, and then I had the Ultramarino zip-off um, uh, long underwear, and I had the 145s. I will tell you those zip-off long underwear that you makes are the, one of the best products I've ever had because being able, to, and up there especially, being able to take off and put on your long johns without having to take off your boots is worth a lot of money because everything's wet. So if you got to sit down and take something off, you know, it's hard to do it without getting wet. So those zip-off, um, zip-off long underwear are incredible. Jay, I'm not sure you're going to need them. But uh, I took the 145s, Kevin and Chase, um, and you guys are going to be there for about seven days longer than me, but I still think the 145s would be fine for you. I took a full set of Super Down, so pants and, and the uh, jacket, and a couple times I put on my pants just because I got cold, and I had them, and I'm like, well, I'm stupid to sit here and shiver if I've got this in my bag. So I always have my Super Down pants and my Super Down jacket in my pack.
4: Did you ever sleep with
1: it? No, I did not sleep with any of it. Um, Brian, let me ask you a quick question. Yeah. And tell me if you think I'm crazy. From what I've heard, and obviously it, I'll have to check the weather right before I go, but I'm halfway contemplating um, just taking my Neo Air um, sleeping pad and not even taking a sleeping bag and sleeping if I need it, sleeping in my Super Down pants and my Super Down jacket. Um, now, Kevin and, and um, Chase, that's obviously not even close to an option, but from what I understand, that first hunt, it can be extremely warm. Do
3: yeah, those guys, that that would be- I I mean, I think you'd be, you could do it. It wouldn't be bad to have, I mean, I think you'd be fine as far as temperature is concerned, but I'm not an expert on that stuff up there at all. Um, as far as, you know, I'm sure the weather can change just like anything else. And so I would definitely be cautious of that, but I think you could do it if, you know, if if that's what you wanted to do. obviously Chase and, Chase and Kevin, that's, you guys are not going to do that. You guys are going to want a sleeping right. bag. Otherwise, you guys
1: are going to turn into the Northern Lights couple. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. To survive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, that Kuyu 30-degree um, bag, you know, it's only two and a half pounds or something, but I'm figuring – I was just thinking that I might not even need it. Um, but anyway, I'll play that by ear. But go ahead and keep going through your gear.
3: Um, I had a Peloton 240 sweater. I wore it a little bit, not a whole lot. Rain gear, I had the Chugach NX. Go ahead, Jay.
1: Was it Was it the hoodie?
3: I, the, the only hoodie? thing I carry with a hood for me is my outer layer. I don't like having three hoods on my stuff. So the only thing that had a hood on it for me was my guide jacket and my rain jacket. Okay. And then rain gear, I had the Chugach NX um, set, which was great for me. Held up really well. Did uh, what I thought was exceptionally well. I took the, for my jacket and stuff I took a the guide jacket and then obviously I had a super down jacket. I chose the guide jacket over the Kenai jacket because I felt like the guide jacket had a little more water repellent ability to it. And so that's why I would um, that's why I chose to take it. I think that you can carry the for Chase and Kevin you guys could potentially carry the heavier weight Fully, water, um, fully waterproof jacket that Kuyu makes and not even have to carry the guy jacket but it's just hard to say because it's a little bit of weight difference but then you don't have to carry a rain jacket and a jacket you're just carrying one jacket that can suffice as both gotcha. so it's something to kind of think about but I wouldn't go for Chase and Kevin I wouldn't go any lighter in rain gear and I don't even think for UJ I'd go lighter because I mean that stuff is that, that
1: yeah, I'm, setup I'm taking is pretty two guys, terrible for sure yeah yeah and so Those that guys is, might consider taking the Yukon, you know, the heaviest Kuyu Ranger gear. they might consider taking that, um, you know, if they're going to be there for 14 or 21 days or whatever it is. Um, yeah, and that's I'm what I looked at,
3: is I looked at, you know, maybe doing that because then you wouldn't have to be shuttling things on and off, but it's, it's kind of 50-50 what you like. Uh, Brendan Burns likes the Kenai jacket, that's what he reckon, recommended to me, and I like that jacket. I just don't feel it has the same kind of water-wicking capability as, like, the guide jacket had, so that's why I chose the guide jacket.
1: It's definitely Uh, a softer type material, Um, you know, from a feel standpoint. It definitely feels softer and doesn't have that, what you would think would repel water.
3: Yeah, and then gloves. I had guide gloves, and then I had another lightweight pair of mechanics gloves that I like to wear on my hunts. I felt like the guide gloves were a little light. So if I was you guys chasing Kevin, I would take something. I would look more along the lines of like a Yukon glove or something that's fully waterproof in a glove that has some warming capability to it. Okay. Because my hands got wet, and I would have to kind of dry things out. It was never a huge issue, but having something that could keep your hands dry would be... um, I think it's kind of a nicer luxury, especially if it gets really cold. We already talked about gaiters um, one way or another. Make sure you're taking gaiters, whatever brand you choose. Just make sure they're, they fit. I would encourage you to hike with them on your boots if you can. Um, my gaiters tore through my shoelace, um, so I was able to just tie the shoelace. Um, back together until it was good, but make sure you both bring an extra set of shoelaces, in my opinion. It's lightweight, maybe just one pair between the two of you, but in case you ha- need it, you have it.
4: The last time I, I listened to you and Jay talk about it, you talked about taking some sort of a Velcro strap on your trekking poles for creek crossings to throw you know, just something extra to pinch your gaiters down. Yeah,
3: if you take an extra Velcro strap, you can take it and basically run it across the top of your Uh, right across the top of your boot onto your gator, so that it creates kind of like an extra seal, so to say, there. Um, The other thing is if you cross, if you have your rain pants on, so if you have your boot on and then your rain pants over the top of your boot and then your gaiters on over the top of that, it's probably the ultimate, so to say, setup, but you won't be always walking with your rain pants on unless it's raining, you know what I mean? So it's not like, you don't always have that on, but it is an option if you get to a deep rain a deep crossing that you wanna that you're worried about, you can put those rain pants over top of the top of the boot and then put the gator over top of the rain pant. Okay. And then trail shoes, um, whatever you decide the there's a lot of different ones out there. I found that the trail shoes were lighter than the crocs in my size and so and I also like the ability to have a shoe that if I needed something, I could I could utilize it, um, utilize it for it in case my boots went down or something happened. Whatever boot you take, treat it with waterproofing stuff. I don't care if it's a synthetic boot; treat it
1: before you go. Okay. You wore the Rebel K's, Brian? Yeah, correct.
3: And they make a treating solution for those too. So I mean, treat them with a waterproofing solution. Just to give you that extra. Are you liking
2: an aerosol can, or is it rub on, or how does that work?
3: Mine was just a pump spray stuff that I got from uh, Sportsman's Warehouse. And it's it's kind of like a white milky thing. And they probably have some other stuff out there for it, but I I think it definitely uh, will help a little bit.
2: And I something want to for find me. something that, out
1: there, uh, Brian, real fast. Uh, I always wear an 11. I mean, every shoe I have is a 11, and I ordered the Kuyu Rebel K's last year, and, and I wore them in an 11. And I, I here when I was breaking them in in Colorado and what have you before the goat hunt, I mean, they felt tight in the toe box. And at that point, I should have immediately just went up a half a size, and I didn't. I went on the goat hunt and um, my feet were tight in the toe box and what's crazy it's not like i have some that are 10 and a half some that are 11 and that. like every shoe i have is an 11 so it didn't even really dawn on me um this year i ordered the rebel k's in the 11 and a half and what a difference i mean it went from being tight in the toe box to perfectly fitting boot but definitely a half size up so anybody out there listening um these kuyu rebel k boots are phenomenal boots as lightweight as they are i mean Brian, I was wearing the Schnee's granite, and I've worn those for years, but they're just so heavy. You know, they're a leather boot and just such a heavy boot. These 2 boots are so light, Um, but definitely, if you're looking at ordering the boots, it may not be the same with everybody, but I've talked to a handful of guys, and definitely, I would recommend ordering a half size larger um, and starting from there, and it's made a world of difference for me. I'm, you know, I'm uh, love these boots now, and they fit perfectly. So,
4: Jay, this, yeah, for uh, sure. this This summer, a buddy of ours he he lives in Flagstaff. His name's Clay Decor. He uh, he came and fit me and Chase for boots, and and showed us we've we've been buying all of our boots one whole size off, and kind of showed too us big. what you guys were talking about uh, too small. And he he showed us a way to lace them up like you guys have been talking about to to hold that heel in the back of that boot and. Since he, the boots I'm taking on, uh, well, me and Chase are taking the same ones, but I've been, you know, working out hiking in them, and it's amazing the difference it's made in my feet and how they feel with with a weighted pack,
1: you know, hiking far. That's great stuff. That's good um, good stuff to, to know for sure. And, you know, deep down I knew before that goat hunt, I knew that the boots, they, they were the wrong size but I just, you know, I've never worn anything other than an 11, and it's like, you know, but now that I've gone up a half size, so, you know, it it may just be me, but I don't think it is because I, I know some other guys that say, yeah, they went up a half size and it, it worked perfect, so just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and, you know, guys, if your feet aren't happy on a long hunt, I mean, it could be a miserable time, so... Yeah. Um, Brian, I don't think I heard you. I, I heard you talk about your Peloton 240. I heard you talk about your jacket. I heard you talk about the 140, 145 zip offs. But I don't think I heard what you took for shirts and how many did you take? Um, yeah, I'm took, planning to wear the 145 merino zip tees. I just I like merino and I like the Cuyu zip tee. Um, curious, how many shirts did you take?
3: I took the ultra merino 145s and the Henley like with the pocket on the front because I don't like the zipper. Um, and I had two of them, and that seemed to be sufficient. Uh, one thing I didn't mention for both of you guys is that Tavis has a washer and dryer there in camp. So, Jay, you're probably not coming back to camp, but there's a chance, Kevin and Chase, that if you guys kill sheep, that he may move you to a place where there's better caribou hunting. And so there is a chance that you may get to you know wash a few things in there, Uh, you'll definitely probably get to take a shower and stuff like that. So just just be aware that there is a washer and dryer there that if you needed to wash something or something got soaked in blood in a pack out or something like that, you could get something cleaned
2: up. That's good to know. Hey, you mentioned you were wearing the Alpine pants. Um, What made you go with those over the attack? Just personal preference?
3: Yeah, um, I liked having the knee pad um, because I felt like I might be doing a little more crawling and stuff like that. It was pretty soft there, so it wasn't a huge issue. But they were a good pant. They worked well for me. I like my attack pants a lot, too, so that's kind of, it was kind of a tough decision. I, for me, was very glad that I did not take the um, the guide pants just because they'd have been too warm. And I think for you guys, I, I don't think you're going to need a guide pant, even though you're going later. You might, but if you have a super down pant or something like that and some some long johns, you can obviously make those pants thicker, but I took the alpine because I had the knee, the knee pads in them, and obviously they just came out with a new version of the knee pad that probably is a little bit quieter than that older version, but that's what I took. One thing for me that was took me forever to figure out what I wanted to bring was uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what what kind of boxers I was going to bring, just because I wanted a 9-inch inseam boxer that kind of came down my leg so I didn't have to worry about like my legs rubbing or anything like that. And so, what I found was there's a, a boxer called an Exo Official with a 9 inch inseam. They sell them at REI or they sell it, they're cheaper online at Amazon. But they're merino boxers, so they're super um, odor efficient as far as keeping odor down and things like that. And so, I was very pleased with those boxers. And I tried. A lot of guys like the first light Red Desert boxers and stuff like that. I tried those. I just couldn't get them to fit the way I wanted them to fit. I really like Under Armour boxers, but Under Armour gets a funk pretty quick. And for a 15 day backpack hunt, I didn't want to deal with that. But I was very pleased with the way that those boxers performed for me. And I took two pairs of boxers. I took I three with me in the basement. Go, go ahead.
2: I ended up wondering about that, Brian, listening.
4: Right, kev uh after listening to you and jay talk about your hunt and what you took i ended up ordering a pair of those the exo official a, a or whatever and <clears throat> the nine inch inseams. and for the last probably week and a half that's what i've been wearing to work and i've done three three or four hikes in them and i literally pulled them off the other day and asked Brittany to, to smell them and and see if they were new or not. <laughs> she couldn't she she's she shook her head, knew what I was up to, but she's like, "Wow, that's amazing, So
3: yeah, perfect. I was very pleased, and I found them kind of right like a week and a half before my hunt, um but I was very pleased with the way they performed and the the way they did worked out there. I took three pairs into base camp, and then I only took two pairs in my pack when I actually went out. I kept a a full set of clean clothes, socks, you know, boxers, pants, and a shirt in base camp that I did not take with me.
4: Gotcha.
1: Okay, I have a question about that kind of stuff, Brian. When you were actually out in the field and you had two pairs of boxers with you, when you'd wear one pair for a day or two, would you then clean them in the creek and let them dry and then wear the other? Would you, would you rotate them by cleaning them, or would you just not even clean them, you would just rotate them and let them kind of air out? Well, I was back in
3: base camp on day six, so it didn't matter to me. Um, I had worn the same pair for six days. I may, maybe I switched it up I don't know on day three um, and so I was able to wash them out and back at camp so I mean that's just something you're gonna have to figure out if they get wet, you're gonna hang them out because nobody wants to be wearing um, wearing wet underwear and so and there were a couple days where I came back wet so I assumed that before I went to bed I uh, I switched boxers but the those down sleeping bags, depending on what bag you have, they have a way of kind of pulling that moisture out of whatever's in there that's wet. So if your socks are slightly damp, it seems like it'll dry it out and pull it out of there. Um, And it definitely worked over time and stuff like that. So I just kind of rotated them as I saw fit. I didn't have a method to the madness of that by any means.
1: Okay. Would you recommend for me definitely, you know, take an extra pair of socks? I hear you took three. I'm doing yeah, I took three pairs of socks, I and I would to...
3: never not go without three pairs of socks because I always had a pair in my tent all the time, and then um, they never left my tent. And then I had a pair that was drying, and then I had the pair I was wearing for that day. Okay, and the so socks that's are lightweight. you're adamant about. Yeah, I thought it was important because, man, I, you want your feet to dry out because if your feet are wet for long periods of time, which they will be all day, that's fine. But, like, when you put those boots on the next morning, you really want your feet to dry out or be dry so that your skin's not soft and pliable um, and things of that nature. And, I mean, since we're talking about feet, uh, I think Kevin and Chase both know, and I think Jay, you know this, but, I mean, obviously Leukotape is something that you absolutely 100% unequivocally have to have with you um, on the hunt. I only... I felt a little hot spot on my heel on my very first hike up, so I told my guide, I stopped, I put a piece of tape on the heel, and that's the only time I applied it. Mike Jones, on the other hand, looked like he used a whole top, whole roll of tape on his feet by the time he got. By the time I saw him, you know, back at base camp.
1: So, that Why stuff, do you think that was?
3: So, I, I don't know, up. I mean, everybody's,
1: go ahead. I tape up before I even start, so I start yeah. the trip with, I'm taped up, and then I never have to change it, usually, um, and that seemed to work for me on the goat hunt and other hunts if you just immediately tape up and go taped up i know justin Schaefer, i had him on he's a army airborne ranger i believe and you know he's done a lot of backpack hunts and he insists on luco tape before the hunt even starts so you like go into the field already taped up
3: yeah and no, i, just I mean, didn't know exactly preference. where to where to put it and and how i mean i looked on how to how to put it on the back of your heel and stuff, and that I utilized those methods that I saw online on how to kind of layer them on the back of your heel. Um, but uh, I only needed to put it on one time, and I was I was good to go. So it was it was totally fine.
1: Most of uh, i get into my um, you can order order it online. Uh, my wife yeah. orders it for me usually two packages at a time, and um, it's it's great stuff. If anybody out there listening has not used it. Um, highly recommend Lucotit.
3: Yeah, so I'm going to get into kind of the gear that I took, and I'm not. I'm going to go through some of this stuff because we talked about most of it. If you have something that you want to have a question on, let me know. But I obviously took the, the Kuyu Icon Pro 7200 with a rain fly. Um, I took the top kind of folding part off of it and stuck it in the bag when I flew, so it made the bag smaller. Um, I took my own Kuyu Mountain. Mountain Star two-person tent with aluminum poles. Do not take a a tent with uh, fiberglass, not fiberglass poles, but uh, carbon fiber fiber. poles because my guides there said that if the carbon fiber gets a nick and the pole shatters, you've got a mess on your hands. So they much, much more prefer the aluminum poles, especially when it gets colder. And I took my own tent, and I would encourage everyone to take their own tent on any hunts like this because... Mm -hmm. The guys provide you with great gear as best you can. Tavis has a bunch of Mountain Star two-person tents, but you don't know what the person before you did in that tent or did to that tent, and so the last thing you want to get is get in a rainstorm and have water dripping on you in your tent on the very first day of your sheep hunt. So, if you can prevent stuff like that by taking your own gear, I would I would definitely encourage you to take your own gear. I took a Thermarest sleeping pad worked great. It was good. I didn't need an insulated pad or anything like that. I, Jay, I took your Montbell zero-degree bag. I still got it. It um, was perfect for what I needed. I didn't need a zero-degree bag by any means, but that's what I had. I took my wife's 1250s. Um, I took STS-65 spotting Scope. I had the marsupial vinyl harness, which worked good for me. Leopold 1200 rangefinder with the uh, true ballistic range. Obviously, everything nowadays. You guys all got that stuff dialed in that has the angle compensation. Uh, my trekking poles were a carbon fiber trekking poles. I took a Goal Zero Nomad 14 solar charger, and it worked great for me. I'm guessing that Chase and you, Kevin, you guys are going to take something a little with a little more juice to it, based on uh, all the stuff you guys got to power up and power down. And then. Headlamps, I had a Petzl Actic and a Petzl Reactic that I took. Chase, you put something out there about satellite devices and we talked. I took an Iridium Go. Works worked great for me. Texting was awesome. Um, the thing that talking on a phone, it was kind of a delay, so you just kind of had to let someone say something and then you heard it and then you delayed your response a little bit to back to them, but it worked good. Make sure you guys got some roll-top dry bags whether it be roll top or zip dry bags, just to kind of keep your change of clothes in and things like that, to keep it from getting getting wet.
1: I Question took a platter. Go for it. Those, um, like I put my sleeping bag, I put, I have zip or the roll top, ba- the Kuyu roll top bags basically for, you know, I have one for my food, I have one for my sleeping bag, I have one for my clothes, stuff. Did you compartmentalize, compartmentalize your stuff like that or did you just throw everything in one bag? No, I
3: mean, I had three or four bags with everything kind of spread out into it and I try to keep things into it just to keep stuff from getting wet. Okay. Take some sort of an aluminum cup with you because you're going to use it a lot. It's going to be your best friend, whether you're eating Top Ramen or drinking coffee or hot chocolate or whatever it is you like to drink. And then... Um, Make sure you have a butt pad, some sort of therm butt pad. It acts as a, as kind of a doormat to your tent as well as you want to have it with you all the time because when you're sitting in glass and whatever you're sitting on is usually going to be wet, so it kind of gives you that little extra protection. And I would try and take a butt pad that's like 18 by 18 or 24 by 24, a little bigger than kind of what we're normally
4: used to taking on uh, on hunts. How about a tarp, Brian? to get out of the rain, you know, getting up to the top yeah. or something.
1: I've been
3: trying to yeah, so out. things what? I wish I had, this is a section that I kind of threw together, was a lightweight sh- shelter tarp. And where it would come in handy, especially, especially I think, for you guys, is that when you hike up to the top of the mountain and, you know, you get there at 9 o'clock and the clouds roll in at nine you're like, man, I am not hiking all the way back down to my tent because it's raining and I want to spend the day up here. And you may not get a clear, not get any clearer weather, but you don't know that at the time. So having a way, because there's no trees on top of those mountains, there's nothing to get out of the rain, having a way to get out of the rain and stay dry and comfortable uh, would be really nice without just being able to, having to, you know, hunker down in your rain gear, but actually having some sort of a tarp would be really beneficial, in my opinion. Okay. So that was something have I wish Have you done I had. any
1: research on, on specific ones you would get, Brian?
3: I haven't. Um, I mean, I looked at them, but I don't have any reason. I don't have a trip plan, so I haven't looked to buy one right now. But, I mean, Hilberg makes one. There's a whole bunch of different companies that make them. Um, so find one that fits your desire and fits your size and kind of your weight. I, I think they're all pretty solid out there so you're just going to have to kind of look and figure out which one you like so I, I don't have a recommendation on one so to say um, larger butt pad, so I told you guys a 24 I think a 24 inch by 24 inch butt pad would be good I would have liked to have had the Yukon pro gloves so a heavier weight glove for me um, my own pocket rocket so my own cooking thing that I can cook whatever cup you buy make sure you can directly put that on the heat um, and cook on that because you're not going to carry a pot and then dump it into a cup. You're just going to have a cup that you cook everything on. My guide had a Helinox chair, which is a luxury item in my opinion, but, man, it, when, <laughs> when you're back at camp or when he was, like, having to cape out the sheep and cape out the caribou hides, it was really nice for him to be able to sit in a chair and have a back rest and back support there, and they're super lightweight I mean, it's obviously not something you're going to hike on the mount, up on the mountain with, but in camp, I think it had to have saved his back and made him way more comfortable when he's, you know, turning ears and turning lips and then turning the hooves on my sheep because I did a life-size mount. So if it's something that you have extra weight on, then it, it's something that is a kind of a luxury item. And then um, I, I only took one shirt and so I added to take another
2: shirt. Gotcha. And then... Go ahead. Same size shirt, 145. Yeah, that's
3: that's all I needed. I didn't need anything more than that. As far as food is concerned, in my opinion, Tavis has just about everything you need. Um, The one thing for me that I will always take on every hunt like this is I like coffee and more than one cup of coffee a day especially when it's cold and I'm socked in a tent so for me Trader Joe's makes a freeze-dried instant coffee that comes in individual packs that already has cream and sugar in it that is a million times better than Starbucks it's slightly... Isn't
1: that what Dar likes?
3: Yeah it's freaking incredible it's way better than Starbucks coffee So it's a little bit bigger package, but I mean very minimally bigger. And it's, in my opinion, it's worth it every, it's worth it completely. I mean, it is so much better. And then I took Costco Trail Mix and I added like seven bags of freaking peanut M&Ms to it and then broke them into one bag a day for the whole time I was there and I really enjoyed my peanut M M&M and M trail mix
1: when I was there. That was your one luxury that you looked forward to every day?
3: Oh man, it was good. I mean Tavis has all the freaking candy bars and stuff you could want to have, but for me that was just something that was that I enjoyed.
2: I heard Tavis um, does airdrops. Did, did you get an airdrop? I didn't get an
3: airdrop. Um Tavis and which I'm a little bummed out about because Tavis's airdrops are pretty epic. Uh, especially when it comes with a homemade hot steaming apple pie getting dropped out of a plane <laughs> when you're hungry or you know a dozen chocolate chip cookies that are gone before they hit the ground type of deal. So I mean he does an airdrop usually somewhere around day eight or day nine depending on your circumstances and uh, it usually comes with some sort of amazingly good home baked apple pie or cookies or something. So those are pretty legit, and if you ever if you needed something additional, you could always get a hold of Tavis that way. And obviously, Chase and Kevin, you guys are going to be knocking stuff down. So my guess is, um, at some point in time, you know, you're going to see the plane. So you'll be when when they call the plane in to come get out whatever you guys have knocked down. They can obviously bring a few extra things if you needed them to bring something.
4: So like because
3: you guys that, got some tags to fill what's that uh,
4: so so me and chase you know we're we're really wanting to document this hunt and 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 take a lot of extra stuff that you know the typical guy isn't going to take so we're really trying to do this the smart way you know with saying you know and weather permitting and all that stuff say he was planning on day eight or nine coming in and doing an airdrop did you plan and pack food for like 13 days, or how many days did you leave base camp with in your pack for food-wise? I had
3: eight days of food in my pack. Okay.
1: And, Brian, I have a question. You say Cavus has all the mountain house meals. He has candy bars. He has all that kind of stuff. I mean, I know that most hunters just show up, and they go in, and they pick out all their food, and he has all that stuff. But what if you show up there and it's not the Mountain House that you like? You know, there's obviously Jay. Mountain he's House got a
3: storeroom. Store. I mean, he has a storeroom there that has cases of Mountain House meals. So I mean, and it's not like one flavor. At least that was not my experience. And Jay, you're gonna be you're gonna get the pick of the the pi- you're gonna get the pick of the pantry because no one will have been there yet. So right. all the gear that he has will be there. So, I mean, Chase and and Kevin are going to be at the tail end, so some things may be dwindled down a little bit. But, I mean, they had all of the stuff that I would have wanted to have to eat as far as main meals. Um, if there's some particular meal that you really enjoy, you know, by all means, bring it. But, you know, they had, for me, up on those hunts, the mountain house meals that I enjoyed the most by far, was chicken and rice because it's a huge portion with a lot of calories and a lot of carbs. Um, and then biscuits and gravy every once in a while was really good just because I like those those particular things and beef stroganoff. Those are the ones for me that I enjoy. But he had chicken or pasta primavera with chicken, which was really good. I mean, he had all sorts of – I didn't eat a Mountain House meal that I didn't like.
1: Did you ever feel you're basically um, running out? What's that?
4: Did you ever feel like your energy, you know, like you didn't have enough or anything? I did not.
3: No, I didn't feel. I I I felt I was good. I took um. So whatever supplement you're going to take with you, as far as a drink mixture, I had obviously wilderness athlete stuff, and then I took um. Oh, what's it called? Propel the little propel packets that they sell at at like walmart and for me that propel was super sweet and so what i would do in the at the morning of every day before you headed up the mountain you hit the last water source on your way up and you filled up your camel pack and you filled up your nalgene bottle my nalgene bottle i would drink a whole nalgene bottle right then or as much as i could and then i would fill the nalgene bottle and put whatever mixture of drink mix. I was going to drink for the day in the Nalgene bottle and then I carried pure water the whole time in my camel pack or platypus or whatever bag you're taking. Okay.
1: A question on that, Brian. You say once you once you go up the mountain, is it basically there's just the, you know, the river bottoms? Is there any like waterfalls and creeks, you know, that you can plan on once you're up there or is it definitely it's dry once you leave the 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 river bottom floor? Uh, I
3: mean, I didn't see anything up on top. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be little pools in the rocks and stuff like that, but where I was at, I didn't see anything like that. I mean, we were about maybe a quarter mile into our hike when we hit the last water source, and we would drop into a little cut and get the water out that we needed, and then we would hike out from there. So, like, we didn't fill up right in base camp. We hiked about a quarter mile and then filled up, and then we were up up on the mountain doing our thing
1: I'd like to ask about up on the mountain doing your thing is it that black shale I mean what kind of are you talking big scree rocks or is it that little scree stuff like what was the and I know I mean it just depends on where you're at
3: there's where I was at it was freaking there was some little scree fields which are awesome to come down the mountain on by the way but there's also just you know just gra- green grass, you know, rolling hills that we also, you know, that was up on top there too. So, I mean, it just depended on what particular side of the mountain you were at or where you were at. I mean, the scree fields were nice because it makes it super easy to come down the mountain in them. But um, it, it really, I didn't have any big bouldery fields. I know a couple of the guys I talked to um, hunted in some spots where there were some boulders and stuff like that but it wasn't anything that was an issue for me. Uh, one thing we'll talk about real quick for breakfast. It's kind of up to you and what you bring as far as breakfast is concerned. I'm, I know that I think Jason and Brennan like to eat um, they'd like to eat an actual like breakfast skillet or something like that for me. I'd have two packets of oatmeal. Each breakfast, I would eat two packets of oatmeal and then I would have those that Justin's peanut butter. The, in the individual you know, two-ounce serving packets, and I took that with me. And so every morning I would have two oatmeal packets, and I would squeeze an entire thing of peanut butter into it to kind of boost the calories. And for me, that was really good. That peanut butter was kind of a nice treat, I guess, to have. And I, I did take the Justin's peanut butter with me, because, and that's kind of something that's a little bit heavier but it was worth having, and I enjoy, I definitely enjoyed it for sure.
1: Did you mess with the hazelnut or the honey, or did you just eat the regular peanut I
3: tried it all, um, but I just ended up taking the flat peanut butter because I was just looking for calories, and, you know, the peanut butter was just as good as anything else and nothing else. I would have taken a different one if it jumped out at me, and I was like, oh, man, I really like that. But there was nothing that I was like, oh, that's that's awesome. He'll have Top Ramen, and then he'll have, like, added soup packets that are just like a powdered soup mix. And so we would take the Top Ramen and mix the soup packet in with the Top Ramen to get more to it. And surprisingly, Top Ramen's got a crap load of calories in it. And when you're on the mountain and you're a little, you know, it's kind of a little cold out, man, being able to have Top Ramen and drink the broth is just kind of a nice nice feature um, to have. And so that was something that was beneficial. I think chase for Kevin and you guys on all your gear and things like that, you probably be able to coordinate getting getting um, a couple batteries dropped off at some point in time. So you might want to think about having a bat like two or three bags laid out on your bunks that say, you know, one, two, and three, and tell Tavis or whoever comes picks you up, hey, on Chase's bunk, grab bag one and bring it bring it when you come get the sheep out. And then you can just swap that stuff out right then and there, and then all they have to do, they don't have to look through your gear. they just walk in and grab a bag and put it on the plane and then they bring you you know three, four new batteries and whatever else you want. So it would be beneficial to have that maybe laid out for you because you guys are gonna knock a sheep down. You know, in the first five six days, you may knock another sheep down. You know, you may knock the caribou down. So I wouldn't be surprised if the plane comes into you a couple of times um, throughout your time frame. I don't think you're going to go nine days without seeing the sheep, or I mean, without seeing the plane. Okay. Gotcha.
4: Because
3: I think you guys are going to knock something down before then. Just, just my guess. Ryan, Jay, I, I know you're picky, day. so you might, you might, you might take it down to the wire.
1: <laughs> There's a good chance. Um, I wanted to ask you about that specifically. I've never seen a doll sheep in my life, so I mean, it's going to be a phenomenal experience for me, no matter what happens. Um, but as far as glassing them up, you say they're not too hard to spot. Um, as far as looking at rams, um, you know, first impressions. Like you, you shot a phenomenal ram, real twisty just beautiful like textbook like what you you know what you go there for um was it evident when you saw your um ram that i mean it was the one you wanted
3: yeah i mean there's my there's no doubt like if i could have drawn a ram that i wanted to kill that was the ram i wanted to kill
1: so one thing i mean compared to other rams like did you saw oh, yeah. the rams, but like, was this one like? I mean, night and day. Like, this was the one.
3: Yeah, there was one other sheep with my ram that was like a nine-year-old ram that's definitely going to be a good ram. Like, a, he's definitely going to be a shooter ram this year. That um, was just a different formation, but I mean, I watched my sheep for three days before I killed him, and I mean, I had him at two hundred yards. I had him at seventy-five yards. So I mean, I got a lot of video and got to look at him and see what he was like. And so, there was no doubt that the ram I was shooting was the the best ram that we had seen and that we saw. And what I would say for all of you guys, obviously, Jay, you got the benefit of having two doll sheep tags in your pocket, and over there in the Northwest Territories, in you're you're really looking for a long ram that's not going to have. They don't have incredible bases. They're not Alaska sheep. They don't. You're not likely to kill a 14 inch based ram in the NWT, but you are likely to kill a 40-inch RAM that may have 12.5-inch bases. So, just understand what you're looking at and what you're looking for. You're probably not going to kill, you know, a super, super heavy RAM um, with those 14, 13 and a half inch base type deal. It could happen. It does happen. I don't know what Cody... What were Cody's bases, Chase? Do you know?
2: I'm not sure on those.
3: So, my RAM was 40 by 12.5, and... A half, and you know that's what I wanted though I wanted that that flared long flared out look. that's what I was going for so I was extremely happy to have that um, I, I measured I think 10 Rams in camp obviously Cody's wasn't there just yet at the time I don't think but and I mean they were all I wrote down all the measurements but I mean the biggest Ram that we had was when I was there was like 161 162 and they were all in that 36 to 40-inch type range. So, I mean, you're looking for a ram that's going to be in that 155 to 160, but you're really hunting for a look and an age more than anything. So, I mean, I would kind of factor that in. I mean, I, I wanted the long, you know, flared-out ram is what I was going for. i much rather kill that than a ram that had 13.5-inch bases but was broomed off 4 inches. So, I mean, I, I got what I wanted. And for you, Jay, I mean, I think that you sh- that's what you should be looking for over there and then going for the heavier ram when you go to the Chugach. Um, but, I mean, for Chase and Kevin, obviously you guys got to figure out, you know, what type of sheep you're looking for and who's going to do what. But I'm sure you guys will get it all figured out.
1: From a spookiness standpoint, um, Brian, you know, compared to animals that, that we've all hunted in the lower 48 here, I mean, what was your impression of most of the doll sheep?
3: Um, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're going to be able to get within rifle range of the sheep without a problem. You know, it I didn't feel like to me that that was an issue. So, I didn't think that they were crazy skittish. So, they gave you the opportunities to get within range. And, I mean, <laughs> as long as you're above them, you seem to be able to, to get away with a lot more.
1: Good stuff. Um, Does anybody, I've heard a little bit of bells dinging and stuff. We might have lost uh, one or two of those guys. Uh, Chase and Kevin, are you still with us? Yeah.
2: Yeah, the rain came in again and my service is not the best, so it dropped me twice.
1: No sweat, no sweat. Um, Do you guys have any uh, final questions, um, any last comments, anything you want to? You know, ask Brian or me or or anything you want to say. Um, this has been a very informative podcast, and uh, feel free to take as much time if you've got questions or what have you. I got I got a quick one, real quick. Because I know, I mean, I keep bringing it up, but me and Chase are
4: planning on taking so much stuff. You know, any pack surprises and and and, and weight wise. You know, I. On your Facebook, I remember seeing you at your house with your pack, Brian, saying it was like 55 pounds. And then on the podcast, remember hearing you say it, you had the surprise of the the Nalgene bottle full of salt. Was there anything else that you didn't anticipate pack weight wise? Uh, nope, that
3: was the biggest thing. Was having a, a five, basically like a four, five pound Nalgene bottle full of salt that I had to put in my pack. Right. And so, and it made sense. I just no one had mentioned it to me, so I didn't. I didn't know that I would have to carry that, but at the same time, I also kind of thought I was gonna to have to carry water, so it wasn't an issue. it kind of was an offsetting issue um as far as one one or the other and then uh, one thing I want to make sure Kevin that we're clear that you lay this out with with Brittany is that you're buying a moose tag, so she just needs to understand that you're gonna have a moose tag, and that there's a chance that you might have to work some overtime if you're blessed to kill a moose. So I talked to Chase about this a little bit yesterday or the other, I think it was yesterday or the day before that, but you, you're definitely buying a moose tag. So right. make sure to budget for that.
1: <laughs> Brian, is I mean, is your thought in that, like you've gone this far and to have to go back up, you know, to plan another trip for moose when you could potentially knock all three down and, in other words, have that, you know, opportunity right there while it seems like a lot of money right then, if you had to plan a whole other moose trip, you'd probably be looking at twice as much. Is that kind of what you're thinking?
3: That's exactly what I'm thinking. And, I mean, the fact is is I think the moose tag is 110 bucks. So get the tag, and if you don't shoot one, okay, you spend $110. But you also have to factor in that you're there, and Chase and Kevin are going to be there, in the middle of the prime, I mean, the prime time rut. So there's a good chance that they could see a bull that they want to kill or that he wants to kill. And so, I mean, you know, it may not happen, but you're there. And I'm sure that Tavis will work out something with you since you're already there hunting the other stuff to make it worth your while to have that tag. And if it presents itself, then you just got to take it with its take and roll with it. Okay. But you guys will have to uh, um, probably air cargo your caribou back from from uh, from there. Your caribou and your moose. We brought ours back because we kept the skulls and the horns intact because we wanted to be able to measure them and enter them in Pope and Young. And I think the overall cost between Mike and I was about 500 bucks a piece to get them from their hides and horns intact all the way to Phoenix. And it was very, very simple. Okay. You could potentially Flight. bring a duffel bag and cut them in half and lay them inside of each other and fly them back that way. Uh, we just were not willing to cut our caribou horns in half.
1: Brian, I have a question. What was your experience as far as density? Obviously, every drainage is different there. Um, you know, how many stall sheep, you know, rams, ewes, lambs, would you see about every day?
3: Well, every spot is diff- going to be different um, because I, I flew into base camp with four guys that, you know, we're all still good friends now, and each one of us had a varied, a varied experience um, of our hunt. And I had, you know, I would probably see 20 sheep a day, to th- up to 30 some days. And other guys were seeing, you know, three to five. Um, so it just depends on kind of, kind of figuring them out where they're at. I, I think that you're going to see sheep every day. And, Jay, it may take a couple days, like anything, to figure out for you where the sheep are at and where the better rams are at, but I think that suits you well because you enjoy kind of the exploratory aspect of it and you're there long enough. I think that Chase and Kevin are probably going to hit the ground running because those guys will have been in those drainages and been hunting those mountains and kind of know what sheep are where and what sheep got away from them, and they probably have an idea. Hey, let's maybe go look over here and look for this ram that I saw with my second hunter, but we could never get on and he looked like a pretty good one or something of that nature.
1: As far as being picky, Brian, um, 10 days, depending on weather, I mean, you could potentially lose a couple days to weather. Um, I mean, they go for, they try and harvest 10-year-old rams and, and older I mean, is it is it even feasible that you come across a 10-year-old ram that maybe isn't real flared out or what have you, and, and you say, hey, I want to keep hunting, and the guide wants to throw you off the mountain, and, you know?
3: Well, I mean, hopefully that won't, hopefully that doesn't happen. I mean, if you get on a ram that's 10 years old, um, they're going to want you to shoot it. That's pretty standard, uh, unless the ram has one horn or something crazy of that nature. But... Um, you know, you'll have to work that out with your guide and kind of figure that out, but if they get a ram that's 10 years old, they're really hunting for the experience, and that's something that Tavis that's really important to Tavis but I mean, it ultimately is your hunt but just understand, you know that a 10 year old ram is a hard thing to find and hopefully you'll find that 10 year old ram that kind of fits your bill and what you're looking for in a ram, and I, I think that Odds of you finding a 10-year-old ram that you really didn't like, you know, unless you had like, Isn't a broken or horn or missing six inches of horn on one thing, I don't think are very, very likely.
1: Yeah. Okay.
3: Because, I mean, even Good a 38-inch long horn, that f- a ram that flares, looks impressive.
1: What was that, Jay? Good stuff. Good stuff, bud. Uh, Any more questions from Chase and Kevin? You guys got any more comments or questions? I just got one. How did you get in contact with the hunters that were before you? Uh,
3: Ironically, a couple people had, you know, because I posted that I was going to Arctic Red on social media and stuff, and that, you know, I post pictures of, like, my pack getting ready, and so a couple of those guys had reached just kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you're hunting with Ryan. I didn't even know who I was hunting with. They sent me messages, hey, you're going to be hunting with Ryan, and, you know, he's a good dude and stuff like that. I didn't even know that, but I got a couple messages, like, the week before the hunt, kind of giving me that information.
4: Gotcha.
2: Cool.
3: But you guys are, I'm jealous, man. I wish I could go back. You guys are going to have a blast. It'll be fun. Um... Hopefully, you know, hopefully you guys get to kill some big old sheep. I mean, you're definitely going to get some opportunities and see some nice sheep. And I, I think the mainly just hope the weather's good. That, I mean, that's the main thing because it's going to be an epic experience. And I, it's it's a little time-consuming for travel, but once you're there, it's awesome.
1: Brian, that was one question. Was there any particular city on, you know, weather.com or anything that you used to try and forecast, or is it not even possible to really even know what your weather is?
3: I mean, I just paid attention to what was going on in Norman Wells.
1: I mean, you're how far it's only from a 50 Norman minute Wells? flight.
3: It's only okay. a 50 minute flight from Norman Wells to base camp.
1: Which direction? If I'm. I believe it's west. Okay. Okay. They're basically so at the mouth of the Arctic Red. Yeah. Okay. Well, good stuff, um, guys. Do you have anything else to add there? No,
2: that's all good stuff, Brian. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Thank yeah,
3: you. man. Have fun up there. Enjoy that that weather up there. And uh, if you guys have any other questions, you got the number. Just give me a call.
2: Um, yeah, and
1: the. Uh, um, Chase and Kevin, between now and then, do you guys have any hunts, um, that you're going to be going on, or, or are there any videos coming out on your YouTube channel that, um, the listeners should be, you know, checking out or, or anticipating?
2: Yeah, we've actually, we don't have any hunts between now and then, but, um, we've had hunts the last couple months, and we're actually going to do a little YouTube series, Probably in early July, um, first couple weeks of July, I'm gonna call it season 4.5. Um, got Brittany's buffalo hunt. Got some Texas axis deer. Kevin went to Mexico, killed some Gould's turkeys. Um, I took my son to New Mexico to hunt Merriams, and quite a few hunts from this spring that uh, we're gonna throw on a daily video. Uh, on our YouTube channel, the Mountain Project YouTube channel. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, guys, I
1: want to thank you for uh, coming on and appreciate the great content that you guys put out, the Mountain Project. Uh, I want to give you guys a chance to let uh, the listeners know where they can find you. So if you do that, uh, not only on your social channels, but, um, you know, on YouTube and what have you, your website, whatever, um, and, um, you guys do have some lifestyle apparel, uh, get some cool t-shirts and stuff. So make sure you let people know where they can find you there. And, uh, Brian, as always, it's great having you on the podcast. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll link up all of you guys' information on the show notes of this podcast as well. And I just want to thank, uh, all of you guys, um, for coming on and, and sharing with, with us here. Thanks, Jay. It was awesome. Yeah,
2: thanks Thanks for having us on, Jay. Appreciate it.
1: Sounds good. Well, um, God bless you guys, and uh, yeah, to the listeners, thanks for all your support, and uh, look forward to um, having some more talk about uh, this doll sheep hunt. I'm excited. I can't believe I have two doll sheep hunts in one summer. Um, It's kind of mind-boggling, but Brian said it best. You know, I've kind of got the best of both worlds, because Northwest Territories is known for those kind of flared-out, twisting, you know, doll sheep, and the Chugach is kind of known for those heavy-based rams. So uh, I'm just excited to go see two new places that I haven't been um, and uh, excited for the experience. And if I'm fortunate to get a sheep at either one, uh, it'd just be a bonus. So, uh, guys, God bless to all of you, and um, happy Father's Day, actually, Uh, tomorrow's Father's Day. Uh, all three of you I know are fathers, and um, uh, I, I see how you guys are as dads and see how you how you act with your kids, and um, people notice that stuff, and I notice it, and I just commend the three of you for the guys that you are and raising your kids the way you do, and happy Father's Day to the three of you, and I'll let you go with that, okay?
2: Thanks, Jay. Right, Sounds cool. good. Thanks, Jay.